All right, welcome back to the golf.com podcast. I am Sean Zock. Later on, we're going to talk with Noda Begay, but right now, we have Dylan DeChair, who just got back from Europe. Where the hell you been? I am refreshed, Sean. I'm in the podcast studio, the golf.com offices, and I feel fresh after two weeks of Fortnite in the Emerald Isle across the pond. Um, I was in Northern Ireland for about a week and a half, but right after the Open, me and a couple friends toured down the coast from Portrush to Dublin, played about nine rounds of golf yeah. over five days. I was not invited. Uh, you were not. No, there's no, really no way around that. The worst part about that, we had three, so there was like <laughs> very much room for a fourth. But so uh, no, a bunch it feels of good to be back. Played a bunch of courses that start with Port. Yes, Port. Played Port Stewart, Port Marnock. Uh, did not play Port Rush, okay. but certainly watched some good golf played there. What was your favorite? Wandered of the, around of there. The ports. My favorite of the ports. Um, Port Stewart was very cool. Port Stewart's just down the coast from Port Rush, and the first tee there, you look out on this massive, massive like fescue dune, and then over to your right is the sea. You're just right in town. I mean, I'd never been to the the UK at all, so seeing the way the golf courses just fit into these little towns, you can basically just walk to the downtown from these you know world class golf courses was really really cool i mean i've heard people describe it before but definitely living it was a new experience yeah you got your passport glad you got out and used it a little bit you texted me mid-trip and you said you were kind of working through some things yeah yeah i mean you know i said between you and me i may not be someone that should be playing blades at this point in my (laughs) ball striking career that's not good yeah no the uh things weren't quite where they needed to be in terms of dialing in the irons you really need to control your golf ball over there you need to be top level i was not there so yeah we don't need to get too deep into my actual golf game but um let's just say i enjoyed the creativity of the shot making over there but i was not able to make the shots that i wanted to all the time all right there's always another time uh onward we go we've got five topics Number one has everything to do with Brooks Kepka. Brooks won the WGC FedEx St. Jude Sunday. Forget how he did it or who he beat, he won. As a matter of fact, it is his seventh tour win. Six of those have come in the last three years. Four of them have been major championships. He's number one in the world. He's going to finish this year at that spot unless someone goes crazy. And so I ask you to think about golf history. Are we living in the Brooks Kepka era? Yeah. We are, undeniably, undoubtedly. I think everyone's still getting used to it. I think Brooks Kepka is even still getting used to it. I mean, listen to what he said in his press conference after his win yesterday. He said, you know, it's always nice to squeak out a victory over probably the best <laughs> player right now. The best player referring to Rory McIlroy, who is clearly not the best player right now. We'll get more to Rory in a second, but there was no doubt who the best player on the golf course was yesterday. Once he made his birdie putt and Rory missed on number three, there was just this sense of inevitability, gravity, whatever it is that happens when Kepka takes control of a golf tournament. Usually we see it at a major championship. In this case, it was a flat WGC, um, but it really underscored the sense that when this guy is on, he is the king. All right. So then for the 2010s, let's talk about the eras. I mean, I think there are three. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, man. I don't I mean, know what you think. I but love I think this entire conversation. The but beginning, yeah. The beginning of the 2010s, 
The first era is the Tiger hangover in yep. my eyes. Tiger, for one, is still dealing with the wake of his infidelity. Two, he's not playing as well. He's got all these injuries. So then the second era is the Rory era. Rory takes over. He wins four majors in, a, in I don't know, five years. A bunch of other wins on both tours, the European tour and the PGA tour. He is the number one player in the world. He is the second coming, they say, of Tiger Woods. Whether or not that's true, it's probably not. Then the third era, I think, is the Brooks era, in which, I mean, there is no Jason Day, Spieth, or DJ era. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's funny. I looked at this because I was thinking about an article. This happens sometimes. I get deep into articles that never quite make it to fruition. But this whole idea of, you know, this Game of Thrones where there was a power vacuum where where guys were battling for that top spot and not just the world number one ranking but truly like golf's heavyweight title belt the championship belt you're not just number one by name but you are undoubtedly the best player in the world by any definition and it went around and around and around in this post tiger post rory era dj jt spieth jason day there, I mean, there were all these guys that were rotating it around. Justin Rose got in there. Kepka got in there for a second. Um, it's not until recently, probably at the PGA, um, that Brooks really staked his claim to the throne. None of those dudes had it for more than one year. Now, Spieth has won three majors, which makes you think that there is an era there, a Spieth era. Mm-hmm. But he won them during an incredible 2015 year. Yeah. And when in he 2016, would... he didn't. He didn't play well in 2016. He won a couple of times on tour, but that was it. Yeah. 2017, he gets his British Open, and he hasn't done anything since. So, like, DJ, he wins at Oakmont. He has a great year after that. Then he doesn't win for a little bit of while. So, Jason Day, he has, like, seven wins in 25 starts. Really hot for one year. Fades after that. Justin Rose gets to number one. Wins on tour a couple of times. Fades after that these things they don't there's no sustenance yeah well i think i mean you know you said it if you look at these quote-unquote eras if you look at dj's era you need signature wins to define these things and the wgc's we have learned they you know for for all the the might the the strength of field they cannot carry a player's legacy they're too they're too flat they're good window dressing and for brooks kepka that's exactly what this is this is what this is his best non-major win, right? It's over a strong field, limited field, but still a really strong field. It's over Rory McIlroy, the number three player in the, player in the world. But it really supports his body of work in an important way for how we look at Kepka, and I think that that made yesterday huge for him. Number number one in the field in strokes gained putting, by the way, yesterday, and for the week he gained what almost ten strokes putting this week. So. You know, watching him, it just looks like, oh, he's not missing a shot. He's hitting the middle of every green. He's managing his way around. Now, yesterday, he got up and down all seven times that he missed the green. That's stupid. Uh, he gained almost three strokes on the field, putting on a day where he was already right by the lead. So, I mean, he's just very, very good. All right, Sean. Rory McElroy, the other piece of this final pairing at yesterday in Memphis what do we make of Rory McIlroy? Because, I mean, look, he had another chance here. He was in another final pairing. He came out flat. For most of the day, he was the only player in the field without a birdie. He eventually made one. He shoots one over in the final round and just gets steamrolled by Brooks Kepka, his playing partner. 
what what does this where does this put Rory? What do we make of him? Where is he right now in his career? I'm going to answer that question with a question. And that is, if he was anyone but Rory McIlroy in this scenario, this scenario being that Brooks Kepka is in the final group with you, he's trailing by one, he comes out and plays a lot better golf than you, and he wins the tournament. If it was anyone but Rory McIlroy, do we make much of it? Do we make much of anything that happened yesterday? If DJ is in that position and he loses to the number one player in the world, is it a gigantic issue? If it's John Rahm, do we make a big deal about it? We make a deal about it. We make a, but not a significant deal. But since it's Rory, we make a huge deal about it. Mm -hmm. And we kind of wrap up his non-playoff season with, ah, it was pretty good. You won a couple times. But remember, you know, the, the final piece of the puzzle was you getting your butt kicked by Brooks Kepka. Rory is caught in a brutal spot of expectation where we have incredibly high expectations for the guy. Our ex- expectations couldn't be higher. We're waiting for him to kind of like check the boxes off in his career. He's lived up to a lot of them. He's even like shined like up in Canada this year where we didn't expect him to. But now we expect him to do it everywhere. That's somewhat unfair. I, I know that the guy has kind of been anti-clutch, so to say, when he needed it most lately. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a little bit of recency bias that we're just diving into. Yes, yeah, so you're giving him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, but I do think that I don't think this is a random occurrence because we've seen enough from him now recently to, to show that when he's in these moments where he's just pressing, he's trying too hard. He has not been playing well in those instances in his final round pairings being near the lead at a major, showing up at Portrush in this incredibly high-pressure situation, and, you know, shooting 79. The guy plays really well when loose. And yesterday, I don't know, I mean, certainly watching the round, it felt like from Rory's perspective, it must feel like playing with Brooks, you cannot make a mistake. And when Rory looks like he's playing to not make a mistake, that's when he looks like he's missing this extra element. So that's when, you know... Kepka missed a couple fairways early on, but then he gets up and down at number three. He makes his birdie putt, and then Rory follows by missing from three or four feet. Um, and then it just felt like this is Kepka's time. Rory just can't measure up. And of course, we know he can. We've seen it. We saw him shoot 61 in the final round in Canada. We saw him even almost make the cut after shooting 79 in the first round of the Open Championship. And he still finished T4. But there's something missing for the guy when he gets tight that that swing the timing if that maybe there's too much timing required i don't know or, or he's too self-aware or yeah. s- there's something has happened it's now. definitely weird and you have to look at the statistics a little bit for the entire season to kind of make it even weirder because these expectations you expect him to play so well he's played 15 tour events in 2019 15 he has finished in the top 10 in 12 of those wow. yeah that's insane. It's insane. 80% of his tour events in 2015 have been top 10s. Two of them victories, one at the arguably the biggest non-major tournament. Yes. With Rory right now, I think we need to draw a line in the sand, kind of like DJ right now, where there's old Rory and there's new Rory. Old Rory was this kid, insanely talented, one of the greatest swings probably the game has ever seen. He's probably just as talented as he was then as he is now. But there's just something missing. Well, he, he talks about it too, right? He was talking about this the other day where he was looking back at the 16-year-old him that shot 62 at Portrush. He was saying, you know, I was probably more confident then than I yeah. am now. I Oblivious wish I could get some confidence. of that back. 
And look, in, in golf, I think self-awareness can be the enemy of success, you know, at this pro level. If your self-awareness is anything besides, you know, Kepka's, which is basically like, I'm the man, I'm the best golfer in the world. If, you're, if your self-perception is anything besides that, then it's probably damaging. Rory is one of the most self-aware guys out there, and it may be to his detriment. I'm a little worried about that confidence because, I mean, him and Brooks have a, like, when you look at the last five, six years or so, they've kind of like had this little, not even last three or four years, they've had this like proxy war where they've both been really, really good, but they've never really gone against each other. Right. Like Rory won his majors and won his tournaments and Brooke won, Brooks won his majors and his tournaments. Rory was missing the cut in a lot of Brooks's major victories. They have never really faced off in an actual stroke play event. They faced off at Hazeltine. Rory won, got the best of Brooks, but they haven't done it together. And I think this is just like, this is always what we talked about earlier, the changing of the guard. This is the Brooks era. Like this is how you cement yourself. Can you imagine a bigger flex on Rory than for Brooks to make everybody worried about if he's showing up to the course to go out there, scramble your way to a couple pars and then shoot five under on the last 15 holes. He's even, he's all, all the while he's talking with Rory. He's saying, you know, good shot there, kid. So Rory has to respond to Brooks yeah. and Brooks's niceness. Meanwhile, he's getting run over. He's getting run over. The strangest thing to me is that Rory was still asserting himself. You know, there was this like macho part to Rory where he was smashing it past Kepka. He hit it, you know, on one hole where they both ripped driver. Rory hit it 32 yards past Brooks. Clearly, he, he still has that upper gear. So it's not like this traditional thing of just getting out muscled you know it's not like when tiger would just take over back in the day and just hit it like 40 yards past his competitors rory was actually hitting it past him but it's more like kepka just seems to decide okay i'm gonna hit it to 20 feet now i'm not gonna get too aggressive i'm gonna hit it to like somewhere between 15 and 20 feet on the safe side of the hole and then he hits it to like 18 feet and he makes the putt where rory you know he may have wedge left but there's a good chance he's going to hit it to 50 feet or he's going to hit yeah. it in a bunker. He yeah. doesn't have that precision. And if you look if you look at his putting, he was what? He was 10th the first day, 16th the second day, led the field the third day in putting. Sunday he was 53rd in the field in putting. He lost almost two strokes to the field. I mean, look, I know that those are small sample sizes. There there's some noise in there, but certainly that's been a trend that that doesn't look good and that visibly did not look good yesterday. Before we move forward, one last little bit. Rory, in the middle of his best putting season in his career on the PGA Tour. Mm. So you look at all the things that could be wrong in his game, there's still a lot going right in his game. Onward, Ian Poulter complained last week about fans heckling him, which is a bit of a first-world problem, but it happened during the first round on the 18th hole. A fan yelled, get in the bunker when Poulter's shot was in the air. Poulter had him removed. He later told Sky Sports that fan heckling is an issue that needs to be, quote, stamped out in the professional game. Does he have a point? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what this means. What does that mean, stamped out? I mean, he got the guy kicked out. That's fine. That's all well and good. He got security to remove them. That should always be a power that the player has. I agree with that. Um, sure, is there a lack of creativity in insults, maybe? Is it easy to pile on Poulter because he's this Ryder Cup enemy? Yeah, probably. Is it some major issue i mean not in my mind but I, I tend to be i think less sympathetic towards you know the little problems with players but of, of fans just yelling at players if they're not affecting their actual play 
not a huge problem in my mind. Yeah, I mean, this is the tiny corner of fan heckling that is probably okay and that Ian Poulter and a number of pros need to get over. yelling, People yelling, get in the bunker, get in the hazard. I mean, yeah. the more that the game allows gambling to become a part of it, yes, this stuff's going to happen everywhere more and well, more. Well, and, and that's where then people will truly be trying to if they if they want to affect outcomes, they will be able to affect outcomes. That's where it gets really scary. This just felt different to me than when Justin Thomas did this 18 months ago at the Honda Classic when he had a guy booted because he yelled, get in the bunker. It feels different because Ian Poulter is different. Like Ian Poulter, the, you know, the Ryder Cup hero for Team Europe who has bashed the Americans in that event. And it's one of the most important events for American golf fans, whether or not it should be. That's not up to me, but Ian Poulter has been the villain. And so it is very typical for Ian Poulter to get hated on at these events. Well, it's not some random thing that he's the villain. He has embraced this role. He has brought it on himself. And In one event every two years. So yeah, All right. once, so I once think this every comes, 104 weeks. Mm-hmm. This may come back to the, the lack of creativity from the fans, but they have picked Poulter. And maybe it comes back to the lack of villains in golf too, right? Fans really want someone to root against. They want someone to glom onto. Patrick Reed really <laughs> filled that role pretty nicely um, with a series of incidents. But there's so many sort of unremarkable uh, guys on the PGA Tour in contention most weeks that are just sailing around and, and seem like pretty nice guys and you know not necessarily giving you any reason to root against them. Poulter even though you're right, it is once every two years that he really takes on that persona. He is still giving people more to work with than most other players. So they do glom onto him. Yeah, you're probably right. So maybe it's not a lack of creativity. It's like a lack of other options on tour. Well, we tweeted this out from the golf.com account, the fact that this story, and what I just think is that it's okay to not like someone, but just because you have a ticket, doesn't get doesn't give you the right to be a bit of an ass yeah. and i think that not necessarily in this case in the past people have been an ass to ian poulter and when we tweeted it out some of the first responses were like wow if ian poulter can't handle this just wait for beth page assume yeah talking about the Ryder cup in yeah. 2024 and there were multiple responses saying i'm going to give Ian Poulter, the the business when he comes to Beth Page. This is exactly why people don't know if Beth Page should host a Ryder Cup. Yeah. Like you we cannot turn the golf space into a bastardized like arena. Like it, there needs to be some decorum. And at the Ryder Cup there's Does a, there? I think I think at some places there needs to be. And I guess my question it's is It's a slippery slope is what I'm getting to. Yeah. But where is that line? So by buying a ticket, you have certain rights. But do you have a certain freedom of speech between the uh, between the whistles, so to speak? When a player is not over the ball, when he's not about to address it and hit it, I am more in favor of the, I don't know about anything goes, but you should be able to, yeah, you, you bought a ticket, you're in there. If you can handle the awkwardness of yelling something, something at a player, sure, go for it. Yeah, I guess I'm okay with people getting tossed then. Like as yeah. long as the as long as that is an expectation that they have, like you know mm-hmm. what, I can say whatever I want. There's a decent chance that I get booted because of it. Right. But then you kind of get towards the end of a tournament, and there's not much there to stay for it, and you probably bring out your best content. Well, there's a safety in numbers. I think that that's the biggest thing. There's there's totally a safety in numbers and in drinks. 
people drink more at tour events. Yeah. They travel in packs. There's larger crowds, which really gives you this, you know, freedom to just yell something out. I mean, whoever's yelling at Ian Poulter, whoever's yelling at Justin Thomas, if Justin Thomas turns and looks at them, they will shut up immediately. Fans have this sense that that uh, players can't hear them or that somehow they're invincible because the players just kind of turn it off. But look, as a veteran PGA Tour caddy, I can speak to this actually. Being inside the ropes, these guys still hear everything. But, you know, we talked to Jordan Spieth a little bit about this. And, and his thing was basically like, you can't really respond because then that just encourages other people. So you can't really go and wave to everyone. You can't respond to every funny comment or insulting comment because then that will just egg on everyone else. It's better to sort of pretend that there's this wall up. You know, it works better for both people, but, you know, people really get a little loose, especially late in the day on a Friday or a Saturday. Start yelling stuff that they probably wouldn't say sober one-on-one. But speaking of decorum, there's another incident. Sergio Garcia, back in the news this weekend, put himself back in the news on number 16 at TPC Southwind. He hit a poor tee shot. Flared his drive out to the right a little bit on the par five. This is on Saturday. On Saturday. And then, you know, you've seen it a million times to one extent or another from some of your golf buddies, but he turns and slams his club into the tee box, taking a massive gouge out of the tee. Yeah. Swinging hard. This is like 110 plus this swing is, yeah, speed. This is a, a forward swing. This is not a slam into the turf, but actually a Right. This motion. is like a swing, a massive divot, um, which – Look, this raises certain issues with Sergio himself, but then the bigger question that I want you to answer for me is what expressions of rage are acceptable on the PGA Tour? Because I think that there's a clear line, and I'm wondering where you think it is. I don't know if it's so clear, but when it comes to this kind of stuff, I think you have to make it generic. Like, we need to figure out what we have. Take away Sergio's name, take away his face, take away anything he's done in the past. Make it generic. Imagine that this was Joel Dahman and not Sergio. You have a professional who's upset at an event in which uh, a lot of the proceeds go to help raise juniors, uh, in, you know, help juniors fighting cancer. Mm-hmm. So like there's a good vibe all around this entire place. And so you have one professional who's done a, I don't know, he's, he's not playing well and he's letting himself go. Is this that bad when you strip everything away from it? Here's what's bad. I'll tell you because I think there is a line and I don't think it's a high bar at all. I think that players can do just about anything when it comes to expressing rage. They can swear pretty freely. You know, they can scream. They can break clubs. It happens with some regularity. Certainly all three of those things do. But you can't mess with the golf course and you can't mess with other people. And Sergio has shown a repeated lack of respect for those things. It was one week ago that he was in the news for throwing his driver at his caddy. Do you think he knows that he was in the news? Does he get asked about these things? I don't know. I mean, yeah. Does he check his mentions? Does he, there's all these questions, but like he definitely knows that he damaged the greens at Saudi Arabia because he got disqualified and other players in the tournament were complaining about him. He knows that there was that video released of him losing his mind in a bunker Again, that may be a gray area, actually. Because losing your mind in a bunker, sand, not so fragile. Tee boxes, greens, 
very fragile. Sergio Garcia, also fragile. Yeah. But I think that that is the line where, you know, screwing with your caddy, screwing with the golf course, not acceptable at all. If you are going to snap your club over your knee like Patrick Reed at Pebble Beach, if you're going to turn like Trevor Bauer did yesterday. Launch. And launch a baseball from the pitcher's mound over the center field wall. Look, people will make fun of you, but it's not like, oh, you're wrecking this for everyone else. It's just, You just look like you lost it. Maybe you're an idiot. But I think that is the line. All right. So then when you add it to the context of everything Sergio has done, this was on the PGA Tour. Last week was at the British Open, which is shared by two tours. Yeah. Saudi Arabia was a European tour event. Sure. This guy plays all over the world. When you add all this context up, what can we do about it? Like the, the tour can only do anything, can only act on anything that happens in its events. Yeah. The European tour is the exact same on a different continent. There's not much that can be done, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it definitely makes it tricky. And if you look at the, you know, the strange incidents that his rage has gotten him into this year, you can add in this, that weird rules thing with he and Matt Kuchar, who have just been lightning rods this year at the at the WGC match play where Sergio, you know, hit it up to about six inches and then just basically quick swiped the ball away before Kuchar could give it to him. Again, it would not have happened if Sergio was not the way he is, but he just can't get out of his own way. And I think that there is room for the PGA Tour to say, look, this is not acceptable. This is a pattern of behavior. Um, and tell him to take a few weeks off. I mean, there's some way to get to this guy. There has to be. But I don't know. I, don't, I mean, still, if you suspend him, does that actually do anything? I don't know. Yeah, I think that they're going to plead it's out of our jurisdiction. Well, and I think that they have, and I think they still hide behind, you know, fines being private, um, discipline being private. I, I mean, I don't get too worked up about that sort of stuff, but it almost doesn't matter because Sergio is – losing in the court of public opinion, yeah. which is far more important than any of this other stuff. Um, and, and that's what we are more, here for. That's what we're doing. We're right here now. to sway. Yeah, not to turn. Look, I do think it's important to say, I don't think incidents like this, I don't think this means Sergio is a bad guy. You know, like this doesn't make him a bad person. It just means that he can't control his temper on the golf course. And if that is like the criteria for being a bad guy, then like, oh, we're all, we're all, we're, we're all in trouble. Yeah. But as someone that is on the, on the PGA Tour, is a role model, a major champion. You know, this is not some, like, think of the children rant, but, but you know, it's not acceptable. You just can't. It doesn't work. If you're messing with the greens, if you're messing with the, the field of play, it just, everything breaks down. You cannot do it. Moving forward, uh, one of the main topics in the news has been the PGA Tour schedule. Yes. The new schedule is announced today. Hot off the presses. Um, but looking back on the, the schedule we just moved through, we saw a loaded field play in Memphis. It was it was the eighth major or WGC in 23 weeks, and it felt kind of lifeless. It's so it quick. It, it, it's immediately after the Open. Um, Justin Rose at the Open criticized the new schedule. He said it's difficult to peek at all these events that you want to peek at. Uh, and I guess the, the main question is, like, is this schedule a good thing? Are what we're seeing this professional golf schedule, is it a good thing? So funny. I think Justin Rose should talk to Brooks Kepka. Yeah. Because at the start of the year, we talked to Brooks Kepka, and he was like, look, if you get hot for these majors, you could just go win all of them. And then he almost did that. 
So I don't know about the peaking thing. I mean, he's not like a cross country runner. I don't really get that whole peaking thing. I don't get it thing. at all. <laughs> I think it's a huge issue if Justin Rose cannot peak once a month for four straight months. And now yeah. I know that the players comes before that and there's WGCs before and there's WGCs after. But if you call yourself a professional athlete and you want to call yourself even an elite athlete and you cannot get yourself into competitive enough form to win once a month for four straight months, yeah, I think we're talking about a pretty big issue in the professional game. Look, I think this is progress. I think this schedule is a step forward. I think not trying to compete with the NFL come September is, I mean, oh, it's so obvious. I can't believe it took this long to get there, but that's massive. I think shortening the playoffs is good. I think pushing the PGA to the middle and have the having the British, the Open Championship, being the finale. I think all that is good. It's different, and I think people in golf just hate change. And I think that it's it's really as simple as that. It's different, and it's also not. When you look at the number of weeks we just went through, those twenty three weeks, we re- rewind it back. That starts in the beginning of March. Last year, before this whole change, 23 weeks, you're still getting the same number of big events. It's literally just a difference of where they're placed on the map. It, yeah. It's not different. It's it a really, little more condensed, I guess, between the uh, the start and end of the major season itself. Sure. A little bit. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the main difference you're looking at. And then I think... I think people, you know, yearn for a little bit of August major championship golf also. Gross. There's a little bit of I don't. there's a little element of you know, look, golf is is a summer sport to some extent. So, if you don't have a major to look forward to in August, uh, it feels like the summer's over. You know, I've got that sense a little bit in the golf world. Summer's coming to an end. But I don't know, we'll get used to it. It's all about seeding golf's place in the greater sports atmosphere and it is fifth or sixth or seventh most important sport we gotta be straight about it like we love this sport we love the pga tour we love covering it but it's not as big as football and you know that football is already taking over just the talk of sports so mm-hmm. get out of the way like yeah. we cherished this news when it was first announced like why are we reacting to it poorly my question for you though is like what does it do to the wgc's i think yeah. that what we saw in a lifeless Memphis event was kind of significant. I was thinking this morning, who won the WGCs this year? Well, do you know who won the match play? Kevin Kisner. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. Who, who won the next, the, the Mexico event? Oh gosh. Yeah. I couldn't remember either. Uh, it wasn't Rory, <laughs> but it was almost Rory. He was some, you're right. He, he lost by five to DJ to DJ. Okay. But exactly. Like, if you had to name the majors and the yeah. players, you're rattling that off immediately. The WGCs kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I'm kind of okay with that. Like, if you we're going to have this condensed schedule in which you got the players, the Masters, the PGA, the US Open, the British Open, and the FedEx Cup, like, these, are all, these are all the first things you're trying to peak for. Mm-hmm. You want to have Arnie's event be cool. You want to have Jack's event be cool. Right. Like not every event can be (laughs) the sixth major, you know, not everything can be look at tennis. You think, you think tennis has, uh, you know, an identity problem with its, you know, seventh or eighth quote unquote major. I mean, tennis is just focused around the four slams. People know fans know when they're supposed to tune in and dial in and when they're supposed to dial out. PJ tour wants to have their, they've oversaturated everything. You know, and it makes it tricky to figure out, like, wait a minute, Justin Rose could win 
$1.4 million in like Mexico at Mayacoba. But then we're supposed to care, you know, 10 times as much that he's playing in a WGC. Why are we supposed to care? And I think this comes back to this featured group thing where we see the stars together like all the time. This is a personal acts, acts of mine that I like to grind. But we see, we have so much exposure. There is so much money that just the idea of a strong field playing for a lot of money is not in and of itself enough to really like move the needle. No, that's where we're at. Uh, the new schedule looks great. New not, schedule looks not, great. Not much different. It includes the Olympics. And so if those complaints are alive and well this year, I'm sure they will be there next year. Anything you're excited about in this new schedule? Uh, I'm excited for my discussion with Nota Begay. Oh, all right. You're phasing me out. I see how it is. Note is more exciting anyway. Joining us now is four-time tour winner, longtime Golf Channel analyst. His name is Noda Begay. Noda, you're on vacay right now. First off, how is it and where are you? Oh, it's going great. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, got a chance to break away from the TV schedule. Just got back from the Open Championship in Ireland and um, went home for a couple of days, back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then headed down to Cabo. And uh, first time here, I'm at the Diamante property, uh, which is um, one of the properties that Tiger Woods is involved in. And uh, I got to say, one of the best vacations of my life. <laughs> yeah. So wh- how long have you been on tour this year? Like how many, how many weeks out of the last, I don't know, 30 weeks have you been out there? Well, the toughest stretch for us is... Um, during the uh, the spring schedule, NBC Sports has about seven events in a row, and um, about week six or week seven, uh, you wake up and you don't really know where you're at because you've just been going the one event to the next. But uh, it's been pretty steady all year, and I, I cover a wide variety of the events. I do the PGA Tour, I do. Um, the the men's college golf. I did the NCAA Division One Championships this year, and uh, I also do the Tahoe American Century Celebrity Championship. So I get a chance to see a, a wide array of different types of events, which is um, really interesting to cover. Yeah, you are all over the place, all levels of the game. When are you back on tour? When when does your vacation end? <laughs> I'm headed back to the BMW Championship. I'll be in Golf Channel's Orlando studios doing some pregame and postgame work and uh, following the action, which will be taking place at Medina in Chicago, which should be a, a pretty amazing venue for the, for the guys. Uh, players love to go back to these classic courses. Uh, a lot of history there. It's a uh, 99 PJ championship, Tiger Woods, Sergio Garcia, quite some time ago, 20 year anniversary for that. But um, it's a classic golf course and you should see, see some really good golf and a uh, real, real nice test. Did you play in that PGA? I did not. I was a rookie on the PGA Tour and hadn't quite played well enough to qualify for the major championships yet. Uh, my first major championship um, was the 01 Masters. And, um, that was a good one. That was quite an experience, let me tell you that. When I go on vacation, I don't want to watch golf. I might play a little golf, but I don't want to see it. I imagine you might be that way or you might be the opposite. Were you taking in any of the uh, any of the WGC well, it this weekend? It depends what the storyline is. It depends what the storyline is. Like, 
I caught the the end of yesterday's tournament only because I was intrigued to see the Roy McElroy Brooks Kepka showdown. They were they were in the final pairing. They were playing at TPC Southman, which was a venue that I won one of my PJ Tour events at, and it's now a WGC event. So um, I think this this Brooks Kepka story is going to be something that everyone's going to want to follow because his ability to play extremely well in the biggest events. Um, we haven't seen anything like that since Tiger was dominating in, in the 2000s. And so if he's able to keep it up for a couple more years, um, he might do some pretty special things that nobody really expected anybody to sort of attempt to do just because we were so enamored with what Tiger Woods had done uh, at the high point of his career. So I checked it out. It was great. Uh, Brooks came through like he should and uh, notched up another win and solidified his spot at the top of the world ranking. Yeah, I was curious to get your opinion on Brooks just because he's doing Tiger-esque things, but you know, more, more so in the major count than anything else. When you see his game, do you think of Tiger in any way? Are there, are there similarities? Are there like key differences when you see the two of them? Not necessarily his game. I think there, I mean, when Tiger was at his peak, Tiger was the most dynamic player that had ever played in the history of the game. There wasn't a shot that Tiger couldn't hit in terms of high draws, high cuts, low shots, and he would routinely use those shots basically in, in every round. I think Brooks isn't that dynamic in the sense that he doesn't have every shot, but what he does possess is this ability to elevate his focus in the biggest moments and stay calm under pressure. He's one of the most composed players I've ever watched up close. And he's a, he's a type of guy that is, I think, continually going to put himself in the major championship discussion. And um, he plays with, with a chip on his shoulder, um, similar to what Tiger did back, back in, in his prime. Um, but it's great for the, it's great for the game to have a guy like Brooks. I think he's he's a pretty compelling figure. He's not as open with the media as, as we would like, but I think that he does a lot of his talking on the golf course with his with his clubs. And I think the the relationship with the media will will get better as as we progress. And he sort of starts to figure out. Um, just what he can and can't say without without getting barred. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now, that's something that has progressed over this year. I feel like he has more chips at the table than he has ever had in the past. But I'm going to ask you to explain something that you might not be able to explain. It's that focus, that Kepco focus, because it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make like it doesn't make sense to other people when you watch it. When you see visceral things like Dustin Johnson hitting driver or. Jordan Spieth at the peak of his putting, like those things are visible, but Kepka's focus is not an easy thing to pick out. When when you think about his focus, like what does that look like to you? It's simply an ability to maintain your your composure under the biggest um, pressure that you can face. You're able to think clearly. You're able to be methodical about what you're trying to do make very reasonable and and logical decisions about how you should approach a specific situation or a given shot in, in that particular moment. That's what Tiger was the best at. He never 
got rattled. He never sort of um, got deterred from what he felt like was the most appropriate strategy to um, take on uh, a specific shot. And I think that's what, what I see in Brooks. He doesn't really seem to get distracted by all of the 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 noise outside the ropes, whether it's the media, the fans, who he's playing with, how many shots he's leading by, or who's at the top of the leaderboard. He's able to really keep his wits about him and focus on the task at hand. And I think that's paramount when it comes to tournament golf at the highest level. As people say, well, it, you know, is it, if, if, if it was all about driving... Dustin Johnson and Roy McIlroy would be the best players in those situations. If it was all about putting, then there would be other guys. But it's it's more about your ability to stay calm when everything around you is telling you to be jittery or nervous or second-guess yourself. And Brooks, it doesn't get distracted by those things. Yeah, I mean, to me, he just makes it look so damn simple. Like, <laughs> the golf, <laughs> golf at that level is incredibly intricate and difficult. And I think we see it every single week that it is very, very tough. But he makes it look simple. Like, from tee to green yesterday, just 65, the smoothest 65, without really batting an eye. And I don't know. When I look at Brooks, I don't think, like, he's a lot of Tiger or he's a little bit of Tiger or he's a lot like DJ. I kind of view him as you know, this amalgamation of all of these guys. Like, he has the long game of the best long hitters, and he's got the focus of Tiger. And when he's hot, he's got the putting, and he was scrambling unlike he ever has before all weekend. I I just think that we see his peak being a lot higher than most other peaks. Yeah, I I agree. And I think one of the things that we take for granted as fans and as the media that watches the game is the fact that we think these guys just show up overnight, but if you look at Brooks' Brooks's statistical performance, say, over the last four or five years, his short game and his putting were okay. They weren't great. In, in specific, his, his scrambling and his, his strokes gained around, around the green, they, they weren't strong. And what he's really done in the last three or four years is he's really made dramatic improvements. And those sorts of improvements are hard to make because sometimes they're slightly... Ma- uh, mechanical, so you have deficiencies in your mechanical motion around the green that prevent you from hitting certain shots. And he's addressed those things, so he's able to have uh, an, an array of of different shots around the greens that allow him to adjust to certain conditions. And what I mean by that is that um, from over these next few weeks, these players are going to are going to play on three different types of grasses. And so you, you look at what the players were facing um, in Ireland and, you know, those are, are a different type of, of grass. It's a fescue. It's a thicker grass. It's, um, it's a, it's a grass obviously that's common to that area. Then they go to Memphis this week, this past week, and they're on, they're on Zoysia and Zoysia has a, in playing in, you know, 95 degree heat over a hundred plus on the heat index all of a sudden you you have to make huge adjustments in, in how you're approaching specific shots around the green. And, and, you know, he's basically the only player that was at the top of the leaderboard in both places. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just really have to give him, you know, maybe John Rahm, you could say was, was sort of in that discussion, but that, that takes talent and experience and an ability for your game to adjust 
to what you're dealing with that particular week. That's, that's what uh, a number one in the world should be able to do. And that's what Tiger Woods did so, so well when he was number one for so many consecutive weeks. I think it was almost seven years still he was number one. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you mentioned Brooks's ability, or his, his increased ability on the greens and around the greens. And uh, that is another thing that Gary Woodland improved on around the greens. And a couple of years ago, Dustin Johnson really, really dialed in his wedges. The question I have for you is like, what percentage of players on tour are missing one thing where they've got, they've got five gears, but there's one thing missing to make this thing really hum. All of them. Yeah. They're all missing one thing. I mean, you get to the top 10 in the world, they might be missing one. You, you get outside maybe the top 25 or top 50, they're missing two or three. And sometimes it's not what it's anything you can find in the bag. Sometimes it's mental and the mental things are the hardest things to find because um, some players will go their entire career with not being able to win, even though they knock on the door multiple times. It's not because they can't win physically or mechanically with their abilities. It's just that they don't have the, the belief within themselves that they deserve to hold that trophy up. And um, whether it's, I mean, there's two major thresholds, I think, actually maybe three uh, major hurdles or accomplishments in golf. There's your first win, someone that's able to go out and win for the first time. There's a multiple winner. So there's a lot of one hit wonders on, on the tour that will can put it together for, for one week and then never see the winner circle again for the rest of their career. And then there's major championship winners. Um, and so you see guys on the precipice of that major championship, um, accomplishment, you know, guys like Ricky Fowler and, uh, that, that, that come to mind, a uh, John Rahm comes to mind, just talented and just hadn't, hadn't quite been able to put it together yet, but I'm a hundred percent confident that they will. Uh, but I think everybody misses something. Um, Tiger Woods would even tell you that there were holes in his game during his, his peak. Uh, he's a little hard on himself, <laughs> yeah, but, I'd say. um, it's the guy that's able to sort of catch the holes in the dam the best during that particular week that usually has the most success. I like that. Now, my last question on Brooks. He won, I'm sure you saw this, just under $5 million, $4.75 million yesterday when you add up all the various things that he won. And I looked at your career earnings on tour, Nota, $5.2 million. So Brooks almost matched you <laughs> yesterday. I want to know what that makes you feel. It makes me feel great for the game, honestly. I think that we we all had our moments and we all had a chance to sort of experience certain things about about the game throughout our career and I I was fortunate to, to be able to win multiple times and, and play on the President's Cup team and do some, some pretty remarkable things considering what, what I overcame and where I come where I came from. But it's just, it's, um, it's a reflection on what Tiger's done for golf. I mean, this plain and simple, I mean, it has nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with any other player, but Tiger is solely responsible for where the game stands now from an economic standpoint. Um, his ability to grow the game, I mean, the, the greatest grow the game initiative that's taken place in the last 30 years was Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods yeah. winning the nice 90, the 
the 97 Masters by 12 strokes. That was the first real increase in golf participation that the National Golf Foundation, USGA, had seen in 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 the history of, of the game. And now we've seen all these Grow the Game initiatives coming from the PGA of America and all the governing bodies and whatnot, and they haven't been able to match that. So Tiger increased participation, and he by far improved viewership. The ratings are... It's not even comparable. It's not even a fair fight when Tiger's playing and, and when he's not. And so the TV contracts start to get bigger, which means that money trickles down into purses and the benefits for players. And so a lot more players on the PGA Tour are able to not only make, I think, what, um, you know, world-class uh, elite-level sports athletes should make, but even on the bottom tier, there's a, a lot more millionaires on the tour and, and guys that are able to take care of their families and, and play the game for a, a living. Now, I didn't want to ask you a ton of, about Tiger because I'm sure that there are every interview you do, you get a Tiger question. But we get to this point in the season, I got to ask you, a lot of people listening are going to want to know about Tiger's status for the playoffs. It's been a kind of weird year for Tiger, but uh, are you – optimistic right now about his game or are you kind of waiting to till you see what he does uh at liberty national well i think this is a a period of tiger's career where he's just trying to assess still what what the thresholds are with his body um i think that the masters victory was a surprise to everyone including him i mean we all think that okay, I want to go out and do things and contend. And he accomplished a huge feat in, in winning the Tour Championship in 2018 at Eastlake and then goes on to win the Masters, just kind of coming from a place a year ago where he didn't think, um, he wasn't sure if he could win again. And and then you go and win two of the biggest tournaments uh, on the PJ Tour schedule and almost win the FedEx Cup cup um, points race which um, was remarkable but I, I think the the hangover from the Masters win is kind of what we're seeing and not only that you couple that with the new schedule and there's a major basically every four weeks now starting with the Players Championship you got four weeks until the Masters and then just so on and so forth and it's just um a little uncertainty about how to prepare for those particular weeks. And we've seen him sort of take a lot of time off in between weeks, which really hasn't proved to be a winning recipe. And I suspect next year you'll see um, him maybe have at least one or two starts in between the majors and then maybe have play a little bit lighter schedule early in the year. But um, the game's still there. I, I watched him hit balls and visited with him for a little while last week in Ireland. And I don't, uh, I don't see anything within his mechanical motions. It's just the conditions in Ireland were always going to be hard for him because it's just, it's cold and wet mm -hmm. and it's that bone chilling cold when it gets down in, into the fifties and sixties. And anybody that's ever had any kind of injury knows that that's the kind of weather that gives you the most problems. Yeah. Uh, he's he's, so, he's talked about it too. He's just 
Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just the reality. He's 43, you know, he's not 33. And so it's always going to be a, a hard event for him to win. I think it's, it's, it's an easier event for him to win because you don't have to hit your driver at those venues so much. But physically, it's probably the hardest event of the year for him to win. So you got to sort of balance balance the two. If he catches a good week of weather over the next couple of years over there, you might you might see him really contend. But I think the hot weather events are going to be where mm-hmm. he's going to um, see a lot more success. That makes good sense. Now, looking past the FedEx Cup, it is a President's Cup year. Tiger, your guy, he's the captain of the President's Cup team. And uh, that brings me back to the Hazeltine Ryder Cup because you were technically a part of that team. You were driving that cart at Hazeltine. Will you be driving a cart down in Australia, or <laughs> will you have a bigger role than that? Will you be involved at all? I'm not sure exactly what you know. What or if Tiger's going to want, want me to be a part of that? I, it would be great. I certainly would be honored to um, serve on the on the team in, in whatever capacity I, I can to help. I think those are some of the most fun weeks of the year. I, I did it at in 2016 at Hazeltine and 2017 at Liberty National on the President's Cup team. And it's just a great way just to see the guys um, in a different environment. And a lot of them really let their guards down. And uh, there's, there's so much that goes on in the team rooms and on the bus rides and at Liberty National, in that particular instance, on the ferry rides, we, we rode the ferry to the, straight to the golf course. It was one of the coolest things you, that I'd ever done. You, you, we, we passed by the Statue of Liberty every day going to and from the golf course. And so well, those are real neat experiences. And to be a part of a, a Tiger Woods captain team uh, away in Australia, um, I couldn't think of anything more fun, more fun to do. So hopefully... Uh, we'll see what happens with that, but I'm, I'm ready to go. I got my stars and stripes packed in the suitcase, ready to go. Yeah, so do I. Uh, now, before we let you go, I got some random questions because I wanted to get to you on a couple of these things. Uh, my mom listens to the Golf Channel broadcasts, and she doesn't know a ton about golf, but all of a sudden you come on and you are whispering. You're in your whispering voice as the on-course reporter, and I'm curious, do you have to work on your whispering voice? Is there an art to whispering content across the airwaves? No, it's just trying not to get yelled at by the guys because um, there are certain distances. Like if, if I'm within 20 yards, I, I probably need to really whisper. And I don't have, I mean, I think I need to start smoking or something <laughs> because my voice doesn't really carry very well. And um, I've heard from a number of, of friends and, and fans that when I, when I really whisper, I, it's hard for, hard for people to hear me. <laughs> so what I try and do is I, I try and get far enough away where I can speak a little louder, but still be close enough to the action to provide unique insight into what's actually happening on the golf course. And, um, no, the, the, the whispering voice just comes naturally I guess being around the game so much, you just know when you're close to the guys that are playing and, and making a living at the game, you, you don't want to distract them. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to condone uh, the smoking aspect, but you have to work your way through that <laughs> on your own. Uh, now, one thing I did not know about you last week is that when you were at your peak on tour, you were putting right-handed and left-handed. 
I want to know how that came about, whose idea was it, and how it worked for you. Well, two friends of mine, Ryan Stack and Tim Holman, wrote a book called, um, I believe it was called Inside the Ark, and they just just um, talked about the advantages of um, hitting uh, hooking putts, I guess. So for a right-handed, that would be a right-to-left putt. For a left-handed person, that would be a left-to-right putt. And they took our Stanford golf team and did a study. And so what they did was they took us out to um, the 15th green and they had 10 balls set up at each position of the clock with the exception of 12 and 6. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And they had 10 balls at each spot, 10 feet away from the hole, and they asked each one of our teammates, about 10 or 12 of us, to go around the entire circle and hit all the putts right-handed, and then they do it again, and they hit all the putts left-handed. Well, it came back that um, on the left-to-right positions at about 8, 9, and 10, the scores were higher for the left-handed putts meaning players were making more putts at those positions left-handed and pretty much every player on the team had never putted left-handed before. So they were making more putts um, just simply because the theory was that the putt just set up from a physics standpoint um, more advantageous to to hit it from the left-hand side. So I took that information. I'm like, well, I'm a sophomore in college. If if I'm able to perfect this over the next two or three years, I think I could have an advantage on the PGA Tour. And so I, I started doing it, much to the dismay of my coach, who thought I was a lunatic. And I started putting left and right-handed. And it proved to be really successful. I mean, I set the, at the time, the all-time scoring record in the NCAA championships. I saw 10 under 62, 10 birdies, no bogeys. I went to the corn Ferry tour, which formerly was the web.com. And I shot the first 59 in the history of the tour mm-hmm. at 13 under par. And I went on to the PGA tour and won four times in my first two years and set the scoring record, um, at the time at the travelers championship. So it proved to be a winning formula for me. And, now that I've been an analyst now for almost 10 years, it's, um, it, it has proven, I, I've done some research on it, and it is statistically it's advantageous to hit those putts from, from that particular, with that particular strategy. Now, a lot of people don't have that ability to do that, but um, if they were to try, it's, it certainly could be a, a better opportunity to shoot some low scores. I love that. Now, uh, two more quick questions before you go. Uh, I read that you were a pretty good high school basketball player. And so the <laughs> the first question that came to mind is how good is your game and have you ever played Tiger one-on-one? My, I mean, I'm a good shooter. I love, I love to play horse and shoot threes and free throws. And that's one thing I think I took from golf into basketball was I just love to practice and I could just sit there for hours and see how many free throws in a row I could make. Um, yeah, Tiger and I played intramural basketball. Uh, the golf team had an intramural team at Stanford and, um, Tiger was on our team, but let me just 
tell you, let the cat out of the bag. He wasn't in the starting five. No. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to disparage his athletic ability because he's a great athlete. But I mean, with the likes of Casey Martin, who um, had a birth defect in his right leg, who started ahead of him, <laughs> um, will give you any indication of Tiger's skills on the court. Um, I'll just leave it. At that. <laughs> we can leave it there. Uh, one more thing: uh, when it comes to Tiger's golf game, you play a lot of golf with him around him. Was there one time, one moment when it was frustrating how good he was? Like, how do I compete with that? Was there like a shot that he pulled off or something that stood out to you? No, I, I have the best story. So a good friend of mine um, back at Stanford had, who who's a, a very successful businessman and, and, and was just kind of really good at evaluating talent. And we were playing around the golf and he just, you know, off the cuff, just said, you know what, Tiger's just better than everybody. And I never believed it. You never want to believe that there's someone out there that is just flat out better, more talented, and just has a, um, an edge. But I played the tour a few years, and, and every year there was an, an event down at Disney in Orlando. And it was sort of a, it was a pro-am format, but they would let the pros kind of, it was, it was one of the last events of the year, they would let the pros kind of um, pick their partners. So every year Tiger and I would play together and we'd have our two amateurs and what we'd play the first two rounds together. And so we'd, I'd fly to Orlando. This is when he was living at our worth. I'd stay, I'd stay in the house. And, um, for some strange reason, this is the part I love. I mean, I just gotten on tour and, and was getting familiar out there and Tiger was already sort of this world, world, um, superstar, but he had two, white Porsche 911 turbos. They're almost like the identical car. And I couldn't figure out why he had two of them. I guess, I guess when you make that much money, you know, the only thing better than one 911 turbo is two 911 turbos, right? So it was one of the most fun weeks of the year because he would let me drive one of them all week, even though there was no room for my clubs. Um, I'd have to put the clubs in the front seat. It was about a 25 minute drive to the course. And, um, there was these back roads that we go on and I, I won't say that we raced, but you know, we raced. Um, and so we go play and, and we were playing this one particular round. We were, I think on the Magnolia course one year and, um, I, I couldn't have been playing better. I was out there and I, you know, I was making birdie three, four birdies in a row. And I, I think I was five or six under at the turn or something like that. And, Tiger couldn't have played worse. He was hitting the ball everywhere. I mean, when we had 10,000 people following us, so we'd never lose one, which was frustrating because he hit in the middle of <laughs> the, the Florida marsh and we, somebody would find it and he'd hack it out and he'd make a par. I mean, so we get to the 10th hole and I'm playing well and he hits this ball so far left, it's 50 yards left of the fairway in into the deep stuff. And then he takes his provisional, hits it 50 yards right of the fairway. So there's about 125 yards between where these two balls landed. He finds the first one, hacks it out, manages to, to make like a 10-footer for par. I'm making birdies, and I'm playing my butt off, and I make an eagle going down the stretch, and I'm just like, man, I got him today. Like, dinner's on him tonight because I'm just whipping his butt. And we get into the scoring tent, 
And I shoot, I think I shot 63 that day and I, and I was responsible for keeping his score. So, uh, at the beginning of the round, you trade cards with somebody and that's who you keep score for. And so I'm in there adding it up and it comes out to 65 <laughs> and I can't tell you, I was so mad. I was so mad. And I'm like, I had to have like skipped the hole. Like there's no way he shot 65. So I go through it again, 65, and I'm just like, I can't do this, and I got to do it. I, I had to do it one more time, and sure as heck, it was a 65. <laughs> and that was the one day that I finally admitted to myself that Tiger Woods was just a better golfer than I was yep. because he could not have played worse. Like he could not have played a more erratic round, inconsistent, looking for balls every other hole. And I barely beat him by two shots, and I couldn't have played better. <laughs> and so from that point on, I just, like, tipped the cap. I'm like, man, you're just better than I am, and that's cool. Um, but uh, it was a tough, tough day for me. Yeah, I'm sure you are one of many, many, many who felt that way at some point or another. <laughs> uh, thank you, Noda. I appreciate the time today. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. All right, major thanks to Noda Begay for joining me. Dylan, before we go, my favorite thing in golf this week was Shane Lowry's homecoming parade, which was, for anyone that missed it, I think you have to watch it. To, to grasp what he means to a tiny little area west of Dublin called Clara, 3,200 people live there, and I swear 3,200, maybe even more, showed up to this thing. It was the best thing in golf. We need more homecoming parades for major champions. I mean, how great was it that he, he pulled out of the, uh, the WGC just to hang out and party? Yeah. I mean, I was with uh, Shane O'Donohue, famous uh, sportscaster from across the pond. And we were in Dublin and he was getting texts from his relatives because he lives in Dublin. He's getting texts from his relatives who were, you know, seeing Shane out at the pub. He was with some famous footballer, you know, rugby player, one of those Irish sports. And... You know, it was just like different moments throughout the night. This is almost a week after he's won now, and he's yeah. still just out reveling in it. Still illing. I know that his caddy, Bo Martin, got home very early one morning. His wife said, you know what? You need to have your time. You go out and celebrate. I'll see you when I see you. If it's Friday, which was four days from then, it's Friday. Basically, they are making the most of what, of what is happening. Another great aspect of the Open Championship being the final major is that Shane Lowry, he'll get to golf when he gets to golf. Like He doesn't need to peak again unless he wants to win the FedEx Cup, which yeah. I'm sure he does, but he doesn't. He can have a breath. Yeah. And so maybe you don't party after the PGA Championship or after the U.S. Open, but you can at least do it after the Open Championship. That is good enough for us today. Be sure to tune in next week. You can catch us every week on the Golf.com podcast right around this time. For Dylan the Chair, I'm Sean Zock. We'll see you then.